This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Coming up to two minutes past nine, you are tuned to 102.7 Triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. My name's Dr Beach. And I'm Terry Allen. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Nice Good to have morning. you in the studio, Terry. Thank you. Yeah. Nice to be here. For the hour. Oh, wow. Special. Yeah. <laughs> we get our dive reporters for the whole show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I won't bore you that much. <laughs> no, it's going to be great. Hey, many thanks to Tim. Who's uh, just closed the door on us and serenaded us with some some really beautiful Neil Young? Yeah, I love that. He seems to do that quite often between eight thirty and quarter nine. I, it's just for me, I reckon. Yeah, <laughs> I reckon yep. it is. Yeah, sweet bracket too. It's all about me. Around eight o'clock, got into mm-hmm. the car and all the sweet songs. Oh, sweet! Oh, yeah. I missed that. Yeah, I, I just heard Alabama. <laughs> What's on today? Well, you're kicking off. Am We've got I? some news and then... Uh, I'm then you to contribute. Off. Yeah. Didn't I give you that message? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to talk about um, mercury and it moving around in the, um, in the biota, in the ocean. But an unusual vector, marine mammals, mm. elephant seals off the California coast, just south of San Francisco. A very interesting paper that appeared in the Proceedings of the National Academy of the Sciences, United States of America, a few weeks ago. Mm. And if we have time, there's another one that appeared in the PNAS on corals. But um, it's a pretty interesting story on um, on the mercury. So let's talk about that in about ten minutes. Excellent. Then Terry, 
we're going to um, we're going to hit you up for a dive report. But then after that, you've got um, you've coming to talk about diving, learning to dive. Yeah, yeah. I thought I'd go through a little bit about um, how we get into diving, all the way from snorkeling and bubble making, and all the way to the more tech stuff if we've got time. And this is um, uh, we were, we've been planning on doing it anyway, but we had a call a few weeks ago from a listener who wanted to know about what it takes to hit someone who was interested in scuba diving and wanted to know what to avoid and what to look out for and um, I think they were after specific recommendations which we're not necessarily going to recommend any particular company but we can tell you what to look out for and what to avoid. Yep, for sure. Excellent. Um, And then to close the show, um, very sad uh, announcement um, just about a week ago, um, Dr Bill Ballantyne uh, died unexpectedly and if you're wondering who Bill Ballantyne was, he was a New Zealand marine scientist but he was a lot more than that. He uh, did a whole bunch of work through the late 1960s and um, through his efforts uh, along with I'm sure many other people but he was instrumental in establishing the world's first marine protection legislation in New Zealand. Um, which is called the Marine Reserves Act. But then what's, of course, followed on from since then is a, a whole new way of, uh, of looking at the marine environment, particularly regards to protection and conservation. I'm very much looking forward to your piece on that. Mm. So uh, a bit of bit of homage to, um, to Bill Ballantyne. And also um, a brief one to Don Chambers. And I'm guessing many of our listeners probably don't know Don Chambers. He, he also recently passed away. I thought it was during the week, but it, it turns out it was in um, mid-October. And uh, he was a councillor uh, at, at the um, Shire of Indigo, so up sort of in Beechworth area. Um, and uh, aside from being a, just a, a local councillor, he was very big in uh, the litter world. So particularly in Keep Australia Beautiful, Keep Australia Beautiful Victoria, and obviously with, with marine connections there. But he was also a very big champion for um, marine national parks legislation in Victoria back in the late 90s and early 2000s. So a little summary on Don as well. Nice one. Mm. I'm going to do some weather. Please do. Uh, it's a pretty nice day. It's going to be 24 degrees, patchy fog in the early morning, then a mostly sunny day. Light winds becoming south-southwest, 15 to 20 k an hour in the early afternoon. They're becoming light in the evening. Tomorrow, 32 and sunny. Oh, nice. Tuesday, back down to 22. Oh, there's a little bit of... Oh, might be a little bit of rain tomorrow, though. Chance of rain, 50%, they say, even though it says it's sunny. Hmm. Tuesday, 22, 15 to 22. Wednesday, 24. Thursday, 25. Friday, back down to 19. And Saturday, 19 with rain next weekend. <laughs> Sounds like a very typical Melbourne Don't forecast. Don't you love Melbourne? It? Roller coaster. I love this place. <laughs> this is my town. <laughs> my nice, town. Dr. Pitch. <laughs> yeah, I think some people tell me I do have a bit of a voice sometimes. Uh, the tides, I forgot. So we have um, at the heads... High tide at quarter to ten this morning and low tide will be at around 3.30 this afternoon at the heads of Port Phillip. Thank you. Hey, That's Terry, while you're here, yes. you know, and you'll be here for the hour, yes. we, um, we clarified this last week, but I'm also interested in, in the technical clarification of slack tide. Oh, because okay. we, ha- we, had a, we had someone who uh, actually emailed the station and said, you know, those, those uh, nuffies on Sunday morning don't know what slack tide means. And um, I think we kind of gave a slightly ambiguous description of slack tide a few weeks ago, and it kind of m- led to this person in particular thinking it meant that it was the, the, the middle point between high and low, which of course it's not. So we, we mentioned this last week, but given that you're our in-house diving expert. Yeah, so the slack water time is the time um, where the obviously the water's level between the bay and the ocean. It usually does occur around about halfway between the high and low 
tide at the heads and it also can coincide with high tide at Williamstown. So you think about the bay being completely full and then the tide stops. It only gives us about a half an hour, but that's the time when divers go yippee and we jump in and we can do lots of beautiful dives in the heads because we have slack water. Mm. So, and it can vary too. It can be, it can go for 20 minutes and go for, th- you know, um, 45 minutes. So. And that depends on location really. It depends it? on location, also depends on the weather, whether the wind's blowing the water out or in the swell and all sorts of other things, yeah. Is it easy enough to predict how long a slack is going to be? Not really. You can look up, there are um, tables. So if you go to the bomb site, they actually tell you the the stream, the streaming. uh, And so if if they're big tides, they're usually shorter slack water tides. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. So they're the tides that we're more concerned with as divers are the actual slack water. Because you don't want to get caught. No. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get dragged out. No. I want, I'd like to digress here. Well, yeah, I could continue this conversation a little bit. I had a wonderful job when I was in second year at uni where I would go down to Queenscliff um, two or three days a week diving out of the station there and we had settlement panels where we were counting the numbers of like little invertebrates or seaweeds that would settle on these, these panels just yeah. inside the heads. Yep. So we would always have to dive on or around slack tide, slack tide, but because there was so much work to do, we'd like, you know, sometimes go through two tanks, <laughs> it'd be often just hanging on for dear life on oh, one yeah. hand while you're getting dragged, you know, potentially dragged out of their heads or back up to to Hobson's Bay. Oh, it, Whenever it, I think of slack tide, the heads, I think of those Yeah, those it times. roars. I mean, another great dive, of course, is to do a, a drift dive. Yes. So you hang on to a bit of rope with a buoy and, and off you go. Great it's like, fun. It's like flying underwater. Oh, yeah, it's ma- amazing. Yeah. yeah. But... Uh, yeah, you don't out. want to get caught out. <laughs> no. You want to watch out for those sudden kind of rock formations that suddenly yes. appear in front of you. <laughs> it's like George of the Bomb Jungle bashing. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've got a couple of minutes for some quick news. wanted to mention this one super quickly. Um, it, it's front of the good weekend uh, from yesterday. I don't know if you guys caught it. It's um, The headline mm. is See No Evil. So it's a bit of a – it's actually an extremely good article written by Tim Elliott on um, marine theme parks and they're focusing on SeaWorld really with this mm. one. Um, and the, the headline there, are marine theme parks the saviours of endangered species or just watery prisons? Uh, I read through um, this article. Hey, thanks to uh, Helen from Mornington, um, also known as my mum, for pointing that, this one out to me, um, who's also a triple R subscriber. I always have to mention that. Um, yeah, great article. Mm. Did you see it? I, I thought it was good. It was quite balanced, mm. um, pointing out that you know, even though SeaWorld does have dolphins, which we don't agree with having dolphins in captivity, but they also do a lot of good work. Yep. And if one is going to target um, a marine theme park like that that's really bad to dolphins, then you would not by any means go to SeaWorld first. There are many in other places of the world where the animals are treated much more cruelly. There's a whole interesting debate with this one. We're not going to get into it now. Um, But, yeah, really interesting article and and definitely well worth a read. Something that's popped up in today's age um, about... It's more of a profile piece, I think, more than anything else, about um, Dr Jenny Giles, who's an Australian forensic specialist. She's based in Seattle now, but she's doing a whole lot of really interesting forensic work, and they describe it as CSI style, which I guess it is, um, against illegal shark fin trade, Mm. and talks about the techniques that she uses, because often when she comes across a big bag of shark fins, like, how do you know what's in there? How do you know what species it is? Is, where yep. does it come from um, and and how do you kind of uh, 
draw that difference between illegal shark finning or shark fins, sorry, because it's all illegal in terms of the practice of shark finning, but illegal shark fins and legal shark fins, and that's a whole other debate which we're not going to get into now, whether they should be legal at all. But, um, yeah, interesting piece. If you're interested in reading more, check that one out. Yeah. Mm, sounds good. Uh, just a little bit while we got... This is not really news. Most people will know about it now, but I'd just like to remind people of the People's Climate March, which is um, on in Melbourne at 530 Friday, the 27th of November. So it's still a few weeks away, but if you haven't already got that in your diaries, put it in your diaries. It's going to be huge. Fantastic. I'd like to talk about um, mercury in the marine environment, focusing on a paper which appeared in the um, PNAS a little while ago called Mercury Offloaded in Northern Elephant Seal Hair Affects Coastal Seawater Surrounding Rockery. That's a very nice name. Mm. So we're talking about California, a little bit south of San Francisco. Um particular if you know that area well big sir um just south of santa cruz and by the way dr surf and i first had our trip to we first went to america each of us and we um stopped off in san francisco and went down to uc santa cruz this is in about 1986 had a little bit of time there and there just happened to be a cheerleaders conference on at the same time which was pretty fun <laughs> that would have been fascinating it was fascinating <laughs> deeply fascinating we were doing our phds at the time surf on surf culture of course and me on beach culture and um it was yeah thanks for that little anecdote dr beach <laughs> well i was thinking that as i was reading this paper this morning as I, you know as i prepare a long time ahead <laughs> are they cheering for marine science or yeah, uh... they were cheering for marine science oh, very excellent. deeply that's right on the skateboards <laughs> anyway so we're in this area between just south of san francisco very rich environment. In fact, mm. I was reminded of this a few months ago when we, um, when our Venice correspondent and I did a trip from LA up to San Francisco following the coast. And there's just stuff happening in the ocean the whole time because of a, an upwelling event, which creates lots of nutrition for phytoplankton. And then you get all the other marine fauna coming in and eating that. Definition we of an upwelling event? Cold water from the bottom, oh. nutrient rich cold water comes up to the surface and that brings up all the goodies which are down closer to the bottom of the ocean. Mm. And so that feeds everything along the food chain. So much mm. so that in this environment you have um, pinniped colonies or colonies of marine mammals. So northern elephant seals, harbour seals, and in fact the colony that we're talking about, which is at a place called um, Ano Nueva, in fact has... Um, so it's got harbour seals, it's got northern elephant seals, northern fur seals, California sea lions, stellar sea lions and Guadalupe fur seals are found at this one place, which is not too far wow. from San Francisco. Back to the mercury story. So mercury um, is a very nasty contaminant in mm. seawater, as we yeah. know, in particular methylmercury, which is what we call a biologically available form. So there are types of bacteria which can take metallic mercury, which mm. is a contamination from, from humans, from effluent, from all sorts of places, and they can convert that into a form which is then taken up by other animals in the, well, phytoplankton and by other organisms in the food chain all the way up to us, mm. potentially. And this methylmercury is what we call bio bioavailable, and that's the really bad-ass neurotoxin, mm. potential neurotoxin. Well, in fact, it is a neurotoxin. Weirdly, they found, so back in the 1970s, there was a thing called the California Muscle Watch Program where they tested muscles, so mytilus, the, you know, the muscle, the bivalve that we eat. We have mytilus edulis here and over there they have mytilus california. Mm -hmm. um, and they were testing them for mercury. And they found that at this place, which was actually south of, you know, quite a distance south of San Francisco where there is known to be 
mercury contamination in the water in the San Francisco estuary from, you know, decades of industrial stuff happening. But they found that there was massively elevated concentrations of methylmercury in the water then. And people have been wondering for a long time as to why. I mean, the obvious thing that strikes you is that there are all these marine mammals there. But now these people who are working at the, well, out of UC Santa Cruz have been able to show that what's happening is that when these marine mammals, in particular the northern elephant seal, which is the one that they concentrated on, that after they've been eating you know, all the fish and the fish been eating other smaller fish all the way down to phytoplankton, that they accumulate this, mm. the mercury, in particular the methylmercury, but then they slough it off in the spring when they molt. Right. And mm. so springtime, they're out, you know, all sorts of places and then they come back to this place in massive numbers to have their babies and to do stuff and to, you know, just do what northern elephant seals do and all the harbour seals mm. and all those other animals and then they, sl- then they molt. How do they molt? And I'm, I'm really interested in the use of... Because um, you mentioned this at the start of the show, the use of the word vector for mercury and I was thinking how... Mm. Where, where does the vector part come in? Because obviously they're going to bioaccumulate it, but then how do they get rid of it? So obviously this is how. That's right, yeah. by sloughing off their hair. So that, oh, well, okay, like, yeah. like a dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's getting rid of As, as my dog fur. is doing at the moment, our house but is covered in fur. But they don't have yeah. a lot of fur. They don't have a lot of fur, but they say it's molting or they also call it pelage. And I've got to admit pelage. right now whether it's... There might be chunks of skin as well. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Would, would you normally expect the mercury to accumulate in the fat? In the adipose tissue? Um, I guess so. You should ask a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I should. You should ask a biologist. <laughs> well, I'm a physiologist, but I don't know that. Come on, I read this, I read this paper at about 7 o'clock this morning. It's okay. <laughs> no, but it's, it's interesting. Well, I mean, even if it does accumulate in the adipose oh, tissue, yeah, yeah. It, I'm guessing it, it then makes its way into the, the epidermis. Yeah. And then from yeah, there that's right. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's the epidermis, which they're getting, you know, Gets bits of that they're getting rid of, whether it's bits of skin, mm. bits of fat attached to that, little bits of flesh, I don't mm. know, but certainly the fur so that they've been able to measure concentrations in the environment around springtime, which are, where's the figure now? So 17-fold enrichment of methylmercury in the seawater at Ananueva during the um, the molting season for these wow. northern elephant seals. And this far exceeds the, the range that they find up in the San Francisco Bay estuary, mm, yep. which is where you have all that mercury there. So they've measured total mercury, which is the, you know, obviously the total amount of mercury there, including metallic mercury. Mm. But they've also particularly focused on this form called methylmercury, which again is the bioavailable form, which is the very bad neurotoxin, yep. which can then become available to the rest of the, you know, to the food web. So this is the point. So that marine mammal colonies, mm. you know, wonderful things. We love them, of mm. course. And we're not going to do anything <laughs> about it, but it's a, it's a place to watch. Mm. So you would not want to harvest mussels, for example, um, from that area because mm. this, you're getting this, you know, they're acting as a vector and returning all of this back into the seawater. So do they, is there any measurements being done in humans around the different populations? You know, is there any, do they comment on people at all? Like as far as, uh, you know, is this uh, not a concern? <laughs> not that I have noticed, no, no. no. Hmm. But, yeah, anyway, to point out, and wow. I thought that was pretty... Yeah, that's amazing that so much could come off just from their, from their food. Yeah, up often, to 17 times. Often these papers end in a further research kind of paragraph at the end. <laughs> well, so okay, okay. please let, give let, us more let's funding. Get, let's get to that. <laughs> so is that's there a, any kind of recommendation for further research? Um, 
This component of coastal methylmercury food web dynamics and bioavailability warrants further scrutiny as we evaluate nearshore mercury budgets and implement marine conservation strategies. Excellent. Let's let's wait for the next paper in this series. Then. Yeah, so that that's the first line oh. of the next grant application. <laughs> it's it's very important, um, you know. Jokes aside, it's important that this research is done and also that it's continued. Yeah. And, and one wonders um, where where else this might be a problem around the world. Absolutely. Mm. Just in two minutes, I really quickly want to mention another paper, an interesting one, which was in the again in the PNAS, um, and this is a study which has been done by people at the University of Western Australia and also people at the um, Great Barrier Reef um, Centre for Research Excellence, which is, I believe, up at Ames in Townsville. Um, and what they've done is that they've tested the hypothesis that as carbon dioxide concentrations increase in the atmosphere and we know that that leads to an increasing acidification of the ocean and many people including me are always banging on about the fact that biologists in general are terrified that when you increase the acidity of the ocean then that is going to compromise the ability of calcifying organisms such as corals to be able to build their homes build mm. their coral skeletons people have done have done experiments in tanks um, where they've shown that this is a problem but for the first time now, an experiment has been done in situ at Heron right. Island on the reef flat. So they've gone out there and they've made little chambers around Parites cylindrica coral and they have elevated the concentration of hydrogen ions, that is dropped the pH to the predicted levels that we have at the end of the century. So what the IPCC is saying we're going to have at the end of the century. And these experiments were done back in 2010. And I guess they've spent a long time analysing the data. But the take-home message from this is that um, by elevating the concentrations of hydrogen ions, making the pH lower in these chambers, that apparently the corals are not affected. Really? Yeah. That at mm. least for this particular species, they are able to add the little nubs, little nubbins, coral bits, as much as they would in other areas. And it turns out that what they're describing here for the first time is a, a zone of homeostasis around the corals where they have this ability to finally regulate the pH. No matter what the pH of the total surrounding seawater is, they're able to keep it at a very constant rate in the very envelope around where they're yeah. building the corals. I wonder how they're doing that. Mm. Um, it does get into all sorts... It's talking about particular proteins that are transporting stuff around... Um, and if we had more time, I would get onto yeah. that. But it, this kind of makes sense when you think that if you just measured the pH in the water through the through the day on the tidal flats somewhere like Heron Island, which is you know just off Gladstone, mm. that the pH actually changes from around I think it's seven. Um, no, it, 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 it changes dramatically. Yep. Depending on the the tides, the, the temperature, the tides, the, the temperature, all sun. of those things, yep. um, and so. Duh, the corals would have an ability to... Because they've naturally evolved that yeah, They've naturally anyway. evolved this mechanism. But right. this is by no, name, by no means an excuse for us now to say, well, you know, who cares about pumping CO2 into the atmosphere? This is just one particular species. And what this is doing is showing us that they have, you know, biology has an amazing ability to withstand all sorts of things. Yeah. And perhaps wonder... the corals, at least for this species might be okay and this and i stress also this is a short-term study mm. this is only six months and who knows and what my, would happen if these guys the, were monitored yeah, for, for years on end growing and when they're larger and does it affect yeah, yeah growth rates and yeah. that's right and yeah. different stages of the life cycle as well yeah. yeah fascinating we could talk about this all day dr beach one could <laughs> instead but one won't because <laughs> we're going to move on because i don't want to cut terry short oh, right. terry allen Hello. Dive. Dive, yeah, dive. Dive, dive. 
Yeah, so I'll just do a quick uh, dive report. Um, we've actually we've had fantastic visibility the last few weeks, except for that sudden uh, downpour of rain on Monday. So I put a little bit of a dampener on the visibility around the piers, um, but still it's still very good and uh, still I think the temperature's now up to about 15, maybe 16 in the bay. So it's uh, we've had that little bit of warm weather and it's uh, starting to climb up. So a little bit nicer. Uh, very good out in the wrecks and the graveyard area um, but I haven't been out for a while I've been I had to teach a advanced cave course last weekend which was pretty hard work but um, looking forward to getting back into the salt water next week so I'm going to cover on um, Bron asked me to talk about um, open water diving courses and what's involved and uh, uh, what are various uh, options I guess the number one thing to say is that um, snorkeling is a fantastic thing to do in the bay um, there's actually a beautiful snorkeling um, trail in um, at Rye Pier and it has pictures and it sort of guides you as to you know where to go and, and where to have a look at things um, Blairgowrie Marina which has just become our favourite place for diving is also excellent for snorkelling. A lot of beautiful um, sponge walls. Um, you, you can see nudibranchs. Um, last week, we, uh, the other week, we saw some pinky snapper and a few sea sweep and things coming right in. Um, and despite the fact there's pole drivers going and all sorts of extensions to the marina, the uh, the uh, wildlife doesn't seem to be too bothered. That's good. So, yeah, so snorkelling is a good thing to do. Um, you can... Um, some uh, clubs and charter boats will organise snorkelling. So, obviously, most people would probably know about the snorkelling with the seals and, and the dolphins. Um, but also, you can go out to Pope's Eye, which is a great place for snorkelling, um, a beautiful rock annulus. It's very shallow inside. So, people are nervous and not great swimmers. There are options of, you know, wearing life jackets and using um, noodles and all that sort of thing. But pretty easy. Terry, to get out to Pope's Eye, are there boats that one can hitch a lift with? Yeah, so there's a couple of um, charter boats, um, sort of, they dive, they, they're ones that take people diving, but they also will do special ones just for snorkellers. And okay. So, and so usually you'll go and do Pope's Eye and then you go across to the old uh, Chinaman's Hat and you'll see all the, seal, the, the um, young um, bachelor seals out there as well and you can snorkel with them. And they're operating out of Rye or...? They operate out of um, Portsea and uh, Queenscliff, so either side of the bay, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and there's a, there are a few options. Um, but, yeah, so that that's a really good way, especially, to get, I guess, to get kids um, into sort of the water. But, you know, really, of course, anyone. And people often, you know, think about just the Great Barrier Reef, but we really have an amazing, um, you know, as we all know, amazing marine life here, um, mm. as long as you're wearing good wetsuits and such. Moving on from there, um, if you've got kids that are keen, and it's I'm amazed these days, you know, you know I thought I, I didn't get to go diving or do any of this stuff till I was at sort of at uni doing science, but nowadays uh, people are sort of looking for options for kids. Um, one good fun thing to do is bubble makers. So if you have a child that's um, eight years old uh, or over, uh, we can go and have a little party in the pool and usually 
we grab a few little plastic fishies and things and <laughs> they go <laughs> diving down for those and it's really great fun because the kids, are, of course, it's like skiing, you know, they're, mm. they're just naturals and, uh, and yeah, off and they go. Are they sponges for all of the knowledge that comes with it as well, all yeah. the teachings? Uh, yeah, well, we, we have to do, of course, a little bit of theory, you know, don't hold your breath and all the basic rules and, of course, all they want to do is they're itching to get in the water. Yeah. But, um, so this it, is scuba, isn't it? They yeah, this is first... scuba. So yeah. we put a little little tank on them, a little jacket and, um, and off they go. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. So, um, and and that's pretty popular, and and the parents come along and watch and take photos, and but yeah, it's good fun. Do you have um, bubble maker parties? Yes, As you can do birthday parties. Birthday parties, yeah, so much better than going to muckers or whatever. A lot healthier, <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, they're they're really good fun. Um, from bubble makers, there's another thing called Discover Scuba. So obviously for adults, and it's a great way if you sort of think that maybe you might be interested in diving, but you're not really sure. Um, these sort of around the price, fifty to a hundred dollars, and they um, are a similar thing. We do a little bit of theory, jump in the pool, and um, and blow some bubbles as well. And there's also an option to then go in the ocean. So mm. we might go somewhere like Rye Pier and try to look at you know where do you see dragons or some. Um, some seahorses, something, you know, kind of exciting. So it's a real try-before-you-buy type thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's interesting because yeah. um, one of those, uh, something that I've noticed has changed, it's a real shift in the last 20 years, that that sort of uh, option was always available up on the Barrier Reef. If you're just going up there for a holiday, you want to yeah. go out there and try scuba but you haven't got your certificate, you can do that. But it's never sort of been an option here. So it's it's great that that's opening up now. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, sometimes some places that people go, I guess particularly overseas, unfortunately sometimes with that Discover Scuba, they kind of um, maybe not always have a great experience depending yep. on the operators. So, you know, and it sometimes can scare people off. Whereas I think obviously doing it in Australia, anywhere, but, you know, Victoria's good too. Um, you know, it, you, you, you're guaranteed to have excellent standards, et yeah. cetera. So. It's a big investment too once you, if you want to learn how to dive. Yeah. Um, you can hire all your own gear, of course, but I mean, mm. wetsuits are very personal things. So mm. most people at the very least will want to have their own wetsuit and right. have your own weight belt that's tailored to you because everyone needs a different weight of weight belt. And then beyond that, it comes down to how often you think you're going to dive if you want to actually go and invest in the entire kit. Mm. Yeah. But um, to learn to actually to dive, so the courses, there's a number of different um, uh, schools that uh, run these courses. Most people have probably heard of Paddy, so that's probably the, the largest one, but there are a number of other ones. They're all pretty much the same. They're, um, they're all good. Um, one thing I really want to warn people about is the, the good old um, Groupon, Scoopon slash cheapy things that are out there. Um, and as we know, like with a lot of things, and I'm, you know, I'm sure it's even related to sailing and surfing and all sorts of things, um, you get what you pay for. So you, you'll see courses, uh, dive courses in inverted commas, uh, that are advertised at $150. Well, you know, when we teach full open water courses, they go for, um, for five days. Um, so you can imagine, you know, you just can't physically do it. So what I want to say about those cheaper courses it, is that they are called a scuba diver course. It's a very unfortunate name. They turn you into a scuba diver, but you have to dive with an instructor or dive master afterwards. So you're not a fully fledged independent diver at the end of these courses. So as long as you're aware of that, that's fine, but it's it's cheap for a reason. Mm. So I, I would strongly warn people away from that. A full open water course will be around about the $600 mark. Um, some of them you'll do the theory in the classroom. A lot 
we'll also have theory which you can just do online now. Oh, right. Um, so you just do it all before you come and then you usually do a, um, two, a full day in the pool or two half days in the pool. We practice everything first. People are not comfortable. We don't throw them in the ocean straight away. And, you know, you can come back and, and keep, keep <coughs> practising, keep trying if you need to. And then um, a full weekend down at the bay, usually a couple of um, shore dives and then a couple of boat dives. Um, um, yeah, so so we're trying to give people good varieties, see lots of good different things. And, um, yeah, usually if you get a good day out on the wall, um, beautiful, you know, with all the colours, people just can't believe it. They think, you know, this is like going Great Barrier Reef and, you know, just trying to explain to people how great the diving is here. And then beyond that, there's things like advanced open water courses, um, which are just more experience. Uh, we do a lot of things like fish ID, marine ID, naturalist dives in there and uh, for, we could do photography and all sorts of other things. So we pull out all the fish books and the apps and teach people a bit more about the um, wildlife that's, uh, marine life that's there. So yeah, so that's sort of basically what's involved. Obviously we're coming up to summer, it's a popular time to learn to dive. Um, there are also sort of full-time courses where you could do sort of four days in a row. Um, but as I say, most you need two, two weekends is, uh, is, the, is the average time and yeah, about $600. Fantastic. Thanks, Terry. That's all right. And you're listening to Radio Marinara here with uh, Bron, Dr Beach and our in-house dive reporter, dive expert Terry Allen. I thought we might spend the last part of the show talking about Dr Bill Ballantyne, who passed away on the 1st of November, which was um, earlier in the week. And unexpectedly, it's uh, amazing to think that he's gone. He was someone who had global significance in the world of marine conservation and marine protection. And, and um, one of those uh, unsung heroes, I think, Dr Beach, you and I were reflecting in the green room before the start of the show. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it takes me back to um, the summer of 1980, 81, I think. I was lucky enough to spend six or eight weeks at in New Zealand at this place north of Auckland called Lee, which you will talk about, was one of the first conservation areas that Bill Ballantyne set up. So Bill Ballantyne was director of the University of Auckland's um, marine labs, which were stationed, which were at a place called Lee. That's right. Uh, near Warkworth, I remember. Yes. So it was about an hour and a half, two hours north of Auckland, yeah, I think. Yeah, about an hour, yeah. hour and a half. And then there was a little island immediately off the coast there called Goat Island, and all of that was set up as a marine sanctuary. And I remember then in 1980 or 81 thinking, wow, it's a marine sanctuary. I've never heard of one of these before. Yeah. And, it, yeah, it was, I had enormous fun there hanging out yeah. for, for two months working as, well, still a student and undergraduate, but working as a research assistant, which meant tagging along with all the PhD students, postdocs who were there on various different projects and assisting them in any way I could, which meant, you know, getting in the water with them and counting sponges or looking for fish... It was ace. It's it was pretty fantastic. amazing. And place. a really nice crew of people. It was like a party house for two yeah. months, you know, right on the, the beach. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that was my experience there as well. So I need to preface this by saying that um, I ended up spending, I think, four months at Lee, and so fortunate um, to have had the opportunity to work with um, Bill Ballantyne. Um, went there to work specifically with. Uh, 
Bob Crease, who was a marine scientist then at the time, is actually now working in fisheries, I think, in New South Wales. But he was part of the staff at the Lee um, Labs, uh, University of Auckland Lee Marine Laboratory. But Bill at the time, um, I think, had just stepped down as director. He was the inaugural director of the Lee Marine right. Lab, but the longest serving. When I arrived there, I mean, the first person I met was, was I was taken into his office. Yeah. And, you know, I remember this you know, venerable, he said like an old dude at the time, but he's probably, you know, he was, Danny might have been, well, and black beard and hair behind yeah. the desk mm. and, and he was very calm and nice. So I'll give you just a few details about Bill because he really was an extraordinary man. He was, um, just to summarise what he was all about, a tireless campaigner for marine protection, as we mentioned, and back in the 70s and late 60s as well, fought, fought for creation of New Zealand's first marine reserve at Lee, which, which we've just spoken about, north of Auckland. And um, this week, the Minister of Conservation, Nick Smith, described him as the father of marine conservation in New Zealand, not just New Zealand, but the entire world. So um, he had he was very uh, highly awarded with um, a, as a QA which is the Queen's Service Order, which is a particular, mm. um, I think it's the, the New Zealand equivalent of the Order of um, Order of Australia, but also an MBE. Um, so he was actually born in England in 1937, received his Master of Arts from Downing, Downing College in Cambridge in 58, and then a PhD from Queen Mary College from the University of London in 61. And uh, his thesis was entitled, his PhD thesis, The Population Dynamics of Patella, Vulgata and Other Limpets. So you can tell straight away why he was very close to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> in addition for his great conservation work, he, uh, like me, did his PhD on limpets. And you'll remember at Lee, I mean, the intertidal fauna was fantastic. And yes. the flora, the, the, the shells. Mm. Uh, Amazing. Small. That's how I ended up there, was through my right. PhD on limpets and and, uh, and then going over to do some similar work over there. Um, so uh, from 61 to 64, he held a postdoctoral position in Auckland and then formally emigrated to New Zealand in 64 when he uh, was appointed the inaugural director of the University of Auckland's Lee Marine Laboratory and then was a resident biologist um, until 1965, or oh, sorry, since 1965. Amazingly productive um, scientist. He published as late as last year. There's a great paper, which I think we'll go into into detail, maybe next time you're in Dr Beach, which is actually looking at 50 years of marine reserves in New Zealand and some principles for a worldwide network. Well, actually, Jeff Westcott's coming in in a few weeks, mm. who um, is one of the people who's championing and champ, championing, championing. Champion. Um, marine reserves in Australia, and it has a lot to do with them. Um, you know, panels getting those up. So, yeah, it'd be fun to talk about that with him. Great. So, obviously, his big legacy was the Marine Reserves Act in 1971. So, um, as with everywhere else around the world, it's interesting and not surprising that he had significant opposition to, to this, to create a no-take marine reserve at Lee. So, no-take mm. reserves on land, uh, well known, but to actually take that concept under the water was considered very revolutionary and very controversial at the time. Um, so, the Act was created in 71, but then it took another six years for legislative change to allow for the first marine reserve in New Zealand. Oh. So really interesting thinking back to the time they agreed to it in principle, but then obviously it became a case of, well, where are we going to put the first one? Yeah. And that's when the bun fight starts. And it was amazing. I remember diving on the, on the border where you would sit, like you'd just go inside the border and there'd just be heaps of fish and you go outside the border of the reserve and there'd be 
not so many fish. No, that's right. And then you'd have all these recreational fishermen, as we still have now. Mm, yeah, hanging around the, the edges. The commercial fishermen <laughs> hanging around the edge. That's yeah, right. Trying to cast into yeah. it. Yeah. Yes. So 1977 was the uh, Goat Island Marine Reserve um, and the first to be initiated in the world. It's formally known as the Cape Rodney to Okakeri Point Marine Reserve, also known as Goat Island, also the Lee Marine Reserve. So um, it was intended for research, but the another kind of revolutionary approach to this was to welcome visitors immediately and uh, with um, teeming sea life, as you were just describing, Dr Beach, the Marine Reserve very quickly became popular with snorkelers and divers and now gets over 350,000 visitors a year. Wow. So imagine the, uh, the tourism impacts from that. Uh, so following that, there are now 43 marine reserves in New Zealand. So starting with that one that, that Bill Ballantyne created, 43. And a brand new um, proposed 620,000 square kilometre Kermadec Ocean Sanctuary. Mm. So um, uh, Bill was reported to uh, comment only very recently how extremely pleased he was that the Kermadecs were going to get their, the protection that they so uh, so needed. Kermadecs, if you're wondering, are kind of right slap bang in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah. They're um, sort of about the same latitude as the Gold Coast. So if you kind of draw a line between New Zealand and Tonga, that's pretty much where they are. So uh, following on from the very first marine reserve um, from Bill Ballantyne's work, we've now got 6,500 marine protected areas around the world, but they still only encompass 3% of the world's oceans, which means mm. 97% are still unprotected. Just going back, so, so was Lee, that, that, that reserve there, was that the first in the world? Yes, the very first to actually receive marine protection in the world by legislation. So, pretty cool. Mm, excellent. Um, so, look, we could go on and on about Bill Ballantyne. He was an amazing um, man. He uh, contributed so much to uh, where we're at with world conservation of our marine environment and he's one of those quiet achievers that everyone in New Zealand knew him and I think a lot of people in uh, academic circles around the world knew him. Um, so, I thought it was really important to, to bring his work to the attention of, of everybody else and... Uh, uh, May this continue. Vale Bill Ballantyne. Vale mm. Bill Ballantyne and in his, uh, in, in his name. All right, it is 9.59, coming up to the end of our program and the doctors are out there. They've all arrived on bikes this morning. I noticed there was like a sea of lycra mm. <laughs> <laughs> through, the, through the studio doors. Thank you, Terry. No problems. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Dr Beach. Uh, it's a pleasure. And thank you very much to Kent for panelling for us today. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.